Let's get to it this morning. Uh, that Behold the Lamb of God gets me every time, so if I cry today, it's on Him. Uh, blame Him right out of the gate. Grab your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, uh, we're going to be in a short section today. It's a short and very familiar section, so we'll have to work against that in some ways. Uh, if you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks, or, or if this is your first time with us, uh, we're, we're again, we're glad that you're here. The good news for you is that at our present pace, working through the Gospel of John, you're not too far behind. Uh, this is our fourth week, and we are still in chapter 1. Uh, so just to give you a little idea of what's been happening, uh, this is now the fourth Sunday. We started in Easter. Uh, we're calling this series uh, That You May Believe. I want to be honest with you, that is not a creative title, okay? We, we took that from the fourth evangelist himself in John chapter 20. He says, these things are written, okay? This gospel is written that you may believe in Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we just borrowed his purpose statement because we felt like that would be the best place to go with it, all right? We started this on Easter. We're continuing today along this path together uh, with one purpose in mind. Like we're, we're unashamed of this, that our one purpose today is that we, uh, that you, that we might all believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that we might believe that. That's why we're here. So let's go John 1. We're going to start in verse 29. If you are willing and able, I would ask you now to stand with me. And let's tune our hearts to hear the voice of the Lord calling to us through His Word. Uh, We stand at this point in our service. We stand for the reading of Scripture because we stand on the authority of Scripture. It's not my authority. It's not the Presbyterian Church in America's authority. It's not any state authority. I, I don't think they even know we're here. The state doesn't care that we're meeting here today. We stand on the authority of God's Word alone. We are we are sola scriptura people. We're Bible people. So let's go. This is John 1, starting in verse 29. I'm in the wrong page. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, we confess, or I confess, God, that I come in here today distracted. I have come in here today fearful. I I, I will confess that, that I've come in here fearful, that that somebody in here might not like me, that, that... that I wouldn't say the right thing during the children's sermon, that, that the sound wouldn't work, and that, the, that it was going to be too hot in this room. God, I've come in here with a thousand distractions this morning. I mean, I confess that to you not because I'm proud of it, but because I want you to move those things away. And so I know that everybody in here comes with distractions. We come in here with the things of the world trying to grab hold of us and distract our minds from communing with you this morning. 
And so, God, we need you. Like, we need your Holy Spirit. We don't just say that because it's church speak. Like, we really do need you this morning. Because if left to our own, God, we would just be distracted people. So come and speak to us. God, shout to us if you need to. Do whatever it takes to get through the deafness of our ears. Do whatever it does to open our blind eyes to see you more clearly today. God, awaken our souls that we might be your people. We might be your people. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Okay, so, so last week we saw this interaction between John the Baptist and a group of, of what we would just call the religious authorities. They were, a, they were a group that was sent to as sort of an investigative committee to go and find out who this guy is. Go down by the river and find out who this guy is and what he is up to. And that's, what, that's all they really wanted to know. They came to John and they said, who are you? Right? That's what they asked him. And ultimately, after a series of sort of clarifying questions, he told them, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's how he identified himself. That's who he claims to be, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, crying, make straight the way of the Lord. That's how he chose to identify himself to those people. If he had a business card, that's what he's putting on it. Okay? I'm a voice. I'm not the one. I'm a voice. Now, our passage this morning picks up just after that event. We're told that, that we're told there in verse 29 that the next day, okay, that, that's not a figure of speech. That, what that means is that the day after that encounter that I just described to you, the day after that, the day after he formally identified himself as the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, the next day it says he saw Jesus coming toward him, and what he said was simply, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his declaration. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying, here he is. Okay, this is the guy. Like, this is the one. This is the one I've been telling you about. This is like, a, this is like the friend showing up after the party, at, at the party after you've been telling everybody there about him. You've been describing him. Oh, you've got to see this guy. You've got to know this guy. You've got to hear this guy. And then all of a sudden he shows up and you're like, here he is. This is the one. That's the one I've been telling y'all about. He is here. You see, I, I told you, this is he of whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. You see, I, I told you about him and now he's here. And so what we see is that what started out is just an ordinary day. I mean, just an ordinary day. He's just going about his business. Just a normal day down by the river turns into what is essentially the apex, okay? What is the pinnacle of John the Baptist's entire ministry? This is the guy. As he stands there, he seems genuinely surprised that this moment is finally here. As he sees Jesus coming toward him, you see, Jesus isn't just taking a walk by the riverside. Like he's just not, he's not just out for a stroll, kind of finding his way around. No, the, the idea that he's coming towards him means that he's coming with a purpose. He's not just walking indifferently. He's coming toward John the Baptist. It's a, the, the implication there is that some sort of interaction is about to take place. There is going to be a, a conversation 
And this leads us right into 31, where we see John making the confession that I myself did not know him. Look at that in 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. Okay, that he, that Jesus might be made known. And then he continues, okay, continues saying in 32, that when he first met Jesus, that this is what happened. He saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Okay, so, so what that means is that this is not the first time that they've seen one another. This is not the first time that John has seen Jesus. In fact, this is happening after his baptism. And the truth of the matter is this is happening after Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Okay, that's what it says in Luke 4, that he was out in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by by the devil. After his baptism, Jesus himself was tempted by the devil with tangible, with temporal things to abandon his mission of reconciliation. He was tempted to turn from the calling on his life. He was tempted to turn on his, and his whole mission of being sent into the world. He was tempted for 40 days, and that all happened to him after his baptism. So just remember that if Jesus' life, I need you to understand this, that if Jesus' life did not get any easier after his baptism, there is no reason for us to ever expect that ours would actually get easier after ours. All right, if it didn't go that well for the son of man, probably not going to go that well for, my dad's name is John, for the son of John in this world, okay? That's just being honest with you. There is no reason for us to ever assume that coming into the new life in Christ means coming into the easy life in Christ. Nobody complained about the peasant carpenter in Nazareth. We have no sign that he was ever uh, boycotted, that anybody ever rose a hand to say, I'm not sure about this one, when he was in Nazareth. No, it was after he first stepped into the public ministry that the assault on his mission began. And so now we see Jesus, he's, he's emerging back out of the wilderness. He is, he's coming toward John the Baptist, and John sees him coming. This is important. He sees him coming towards him, and he says to those who are gathered around him, probably a bunch of whom who were there the day before. I mean, if I had been there the day before, I'd come back the next day to see what was going to happen again, right? That seemed pretty interesting when the Pharisees sent their crew down there to check on him. But this is what he says. He sees Jesus coming toward him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying, this is the one. He's here. He's here. And so now we see John in verse 32, bearing witness that this is the Christ. To bear witness is to testify. That's what that means. It's to give a testimony. It's to make a, a formal declaration. This is the one. This is the Lamb of God, and this is what he does. He takes away the sin of the world. And so what he does here, what John is doing is, he's, is he brings us the message of the witness. Everything before this was, was about making straight the way of the Lord. Everything leading up to this in his entire life is about making straight the way of the Lord. It's about preparing our hearts for the arrival of the King. Everything leading up to this moment that we see on our, in our Bibles today, everything leading up to this was preparatory. Now, last Friday night, we, we celebrated a birthday for, for one of our kids, right? And so we, 
we did what you guys would do. We invited the crew, right? We sent, it said everybody who's supposed to be there. We invited everybody who's supposed to come and celebrate. We went to the, the grocery store and got the stuff. Went to the, I, I, we went to the grocery store and caught some fish, right? That's the way we did it in our house. Uh, we, I didn't have time to actually go catch it, so we just went and probably China sent it to us, honestly. We don't really know, but we, we, got the, we got the fish, we got potatoes, we got salad, we got oil, we got bread, we got all the things that we needed to throw a party to celebrate this child of ours, Right? We set the table in the dining room. I mean, that's a pretty big day in our house. Uh, baked a cake. Made sure that everything was just right. That, that's the work in the kitchen, right? That's what you do before the party happens. It's getting things ready for the arrival. That's exactly what John had been doing his entire ministry up to this point. He's just setting the table. Just doing the work in the kitchen, getting things ready for the Christ to arrive as, as an honored guest, as he's looking forward to him coming, getting ready to celebrate. He's cried out in the wilderness. He sent out the invitation saying, make straight the way of the Lord. Get everything ready for him. He's called them to prepare their hearts through the acts of repentance. He's called them to prepare their hearts through baptism. And the truth is that as we look back at the whole of the Old Testament, if you look back at the whole of the Old Testament, we should see it all as being the preparatory work for this moment right here. For this moment right here. The whole Old Testament is the work in the kitchen. It's all preparatory. It's getting things ready for the arrival of the Christ. But now, okay, now he's here. You know, once the, once the honored guest arrives, the prep better be through, right? So the preparation is over, and he's here now. Behold, he says, look, see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what we see in this proclamation is, is that John, is that in his life, he means to serve as a herald of Jesus Christ. And there are two ways that he does this, two ways. The first is that he points to Jesus this is, if you're a note taker, that's one, okay? He points to Jesus. And I know that seems so simple that you wouldn't even think to write it down. It's so simplistic that we might miss it. it he points to Jesus. This is simple, but if we miss on this one, I promise you we will miss altogether. John points to Jesus. Look back at 34. Get 34. He says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of of God. That's who Jesus is. We, we know from the first chapter of John that, that Jesus is the eternal word. And, and what we said is that means that he is the supreme revelation of, of, who, of who God is, that he is the eternal message of God in, encapsulated in, uh, in the person of Christ, the supreme revelation of who God is. And so to know, to know Jesus is to know God. And we also remember from the first chapter of John that Jesus is the true light. We, we saw that in verse 9, all the way back in verse 9, that he is the true light which gives light to everything. That's what it said. It means he is the source of all light. It's not that comparing him to other, uh, to other false lights, that's not the idea when we hear true light. True means pinnacle. It means the apex. It means the most important light. That he, is the, he is the source of all light. I love how... The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, this is one of my 
favorite passages. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's his word to us. That's what, that's what Paul says. He says, there's anything like these Think about these things. We're to meditate on these things. We're to set our minds on things that are commendable. We're to set our minds on things that are honorable, that are just, that are pure. We're to set our minds on lovely things. And that's difficult if we're honest. We don't live in a world that makes that very easy for us. It's very rare, okay, that I get to hear good news in the public square. It just doesn't happen very often. You'll see a clip on Facebook about a 5K to support something, and right underneath that will be nuclear weapons somewhere getting ready to destroy us all. And then after that, five more articles about how the racism in our country is just destroying everyone, and we'll hear all these bad things. And and every once in a while, I just want to hear something good. I want to dwell on those things, but we have to fight for that. We have to meditate for those things. And And here's the reason. If we set our minds on those things... In some ways, we will be setting our minds on Christ because he's the source of all of those things. You see, he doesn't just tell the truth, he is truth. I mean, how, how much would you kill? Or That's probably the wrong, wrong way of saying that, right? How, as my son corrected me during the children's sermon, um, wouldn't you just love to know that you could trust the people in your world? Like 100%. No doubt about anything that's being told you. If your son comes back and tells you he caught a fish and he tells you it's that big, that you would believe it was that big. That if a politician stood up in Washington and Mesa, that would go, that's true. That's a true statement. Right now, I have so much doubt about most of what I hear. You see, Jesus shines into that, that he is truth. He doesn't just do commendable things. Because he's God, he is commendable. Everything that you see is sourced from him. That is worthy of praise. When my child first learned to walk, all all three of them, they stumbled around, you know, like a baby does. They take two steps and fall over, and we clap like like it was the greatest thing that had ever happened. Look at him go. Oh, he's down again. Look at him go. He's down again, right? This is how it works with a child. God created everything everything, and we look at him with, eh, what else you got? He's commendable because he's God. He doesn't just exact justice. God is justice. Jesus is justice. He's the fullness of all of these things, all of these things that Paul calls on us to think of. So it shouldn't be hard. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's the catch. It should not be hard for you in your life to point to Jesus. Everything around you points to Jesus, because he's the source of it. When we look at the beauty of creation, like tonight, if you will stand out in your yard and see the sun setting, I promise you it will be worth it. If you can take your eyes off of your device for the 30 seconds it's going to take to watch that sun just vanish on the horizon, and you don't feel something stirring in you, Like if you can stand on the bank of a flowing river and see the water moving and consider that all of that has to happen for that to exist and it doesn't stir in you some sort of praise and exaltation for the one who has spoken it into being, I'll be honest, I pity your heart. 
Because when I stand there, when I see that, like tonight, I'm going to stand outside. I'm going to watch that sunset. And when I see that, it's going to stir in me something powerful, something that I can't, something inside my soul. And what I'm going to tell you is that's not an accident. You know, in Ecclesiastes 3, in Ecclesiastes 3, the teacher tells us that there's a, there's a season for everything, right? There's a time to plant, uh, a time to pluck up, a time to be born, a time to die, a, a time to kill, a time to heal, right? You know this. This is not new. If you thought that was just a song from the 60s, I really do hate to break your heart, okay? The, the birds stole that from Solomon, right? Um, they, they, they just took that right out of him, and then they, they got a bunch of residuals off of it. it. But it goes on, right? It goes on and describes all these cycles, all of these seasons. It's the cycle of what it looks like to live in this world. And you and I, it resonates with us. Yeah, we've, we've lived through all of these times. There's an order to it. And it's just this man speaking out of the wisdom of his experience in this world. He's describing reality as we know it. As we feel it, he's describing it as we experience it. And then down in, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says that, that God has put eternity into a man's heart. So that's a little line that might get, might get just glossed right over because we get stuck on the bird song, right? But really, it, that, that line right there says he has put eternity into into a man's heart. What that means is that there is a reason that everything that we feel, everything that we taste, everything that we touch, smell, every single thing that we come into contact, there's a reason why why those things fail to fully satisfy us. There's a reason why the best meal you've ever eaten left you hungry the next day. There's a reason why the happiest moment you ever experienced was fleeting and something tragic happened within 48 hours. You see, these temporal things, these temporal things that have been made were never meant to fill the gap of eternity that is in a man's heart. Only something that is eternal. Only something that is eternal can fill an eternal gap. And since God is eternal, he's the, he's the only eternal thing. He's the only thing that goes all the way both directions. Wrap your mind around that, okay? He goes all the way in both directions, He's the only thing that does that. He's the only source. He's the only thing that can fill the gap of eternity because only he is eternal. When our hearts are crying out for justice in this world, that points us to the source of true justice. Because we know it has to find its anchor in something beyond here because we rarely see true justice in this world. When our hearts ache to be held in a love and affection that is not conditioned whatsoever on our behavior, that is not based on what I do, that points to the one who is love, who shows us what that agape type of love, that sacrificial love, that love that says, I have nothing, I expect nothing in return. And this goes on and on and on. When I see brokenness in the people's in the lives of the people around me, when I, see, when I see these little fractured and shattered communities, whether that's just one person and their, little, and their little heart and soul being just all wrecked, or whether that's a small family of two, whether that's a family of 25, when we see the brokenness in our world, it creates a stirring for, for the true community that's wrapped up in the triune God. Right? I long for a completely unstained community like we see in God, where Jesus could say, not that he lives in the same house, not that he gets along with God, not that they're tight, but that he, he actually says, 
I and the Father are one. You see, my heart longs for for a relationship with my wife that mirrors what Jesus declared when he said, I and the Father are one. Nothing to hide, no shame, no fear. That's what I want. You see, that's not finding its root here. That's finding its root somewhere else. Something beyond this world. That's true community. You see, it's, it's, it's not hard to point to Jesus when everything in our hearts aches for what only he can provide. And that's what John was doing. He was a sign, just like a sign out by the street telling you there's a turn coming. He was a sign pointing to the real thing. That's what he did. That's the first thing he did. He pointed to Jesus. The second thing, the second thing he did is he told us what Jesus has done. Okay, He told us what Jesus has done. Now, that can be an overwhelming idea if you started in John 1 and have been reading with us. Okay, Because we remember back in verse 3 a few weeks ago that, that it said that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, so he made it all, every single thing. Not only did he make it all, we're told that he sustains it all. And so if we were to tell what Jesus has done, that can be an overwhelming idea because he's done everything. There's no shortage of things to point to. He made it all. Just this week, I was praying with a, with a group of guys uh, through Psalm 104, and we were reminded of this reality. In, in Psalm 104, 24, it says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And if you read that psalm, he goes, he gets in specifics. He talks about the swarming things in the sea and the birds of the heavens. It just blows my mind how how 5,000 years ago somebody was writing about the swarming things of the sea. We think we're so smart with with our drone cameras now out over the coast filming these swarms of little creatures. They knew that way back then. And they point all of that, all of that points to God. How The earth is full of your creatures. You see, not only did he make it all, he claims it all. God does not look at this world with regret. He claims it as his own. And if we dare to allow our minds to dwell on that thought, if we dared for just, to just be still for just a moment, I know stillness and quiet seem to be the greatest enemies of our time. We seem to fill every moment with something. But if we would just dare for a moment to dwell on what it means that everything was created by God and for God. If you could just spend 30 minutes this week thinking of those things, try making a list of everything that you know. And God made all of that. If we could begin to do that, we begin to understand what Solomon meant when he wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You see, the more that we understand of God, the more that we grasp of who He is and what He has done, the more we find in ourselves a true sense of awe, a true sense of wonder for who He is and what He has done. And so we end up with a lot of material to share in this part. But what John's pointing to is something very specific. He's not pointing to all of creation. He doesn't even point at the river and say, hey, this is the guy who made this. He doesn't point at the earth and the rocks and say, he's the one who made all this. No, he's talking about the plan of redemption. He's talking about Jesus's act of redeeming the world to himself. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
We can never forget that John occupies the same broken world that we do. He lives in the same world that we do. Now, it's a long time ago, but it's the same broken, same sinful, same tragically flawed world because of our sin. He lives in that same place. And so when we point to Jesus, it's very, very important that we don't just point to him as as a guy. We don't just point to him as a, as a peasant teacher from Nazareth who acquired a following. We don't point to him as just another good moral example in a history book. We don't point to him like that. We point to him as our Savior. We point to him as our Redeemer. He's the only one we can point to like that. Listen, the image of a lamb was not a foreign idea to the people of John's day. You see, they were, not only were they living in a culture where things like sheep and other livestock, like I don't have sheep. I don't, I don't own livestock. And maybe you do, and that is great. But most of us don't, we don't own livestock. We just go to Publix, right? Or now one of the three grocery stores on one block right up here, if you want to. I can't even pronounce the name of one of them. There's so many grocery stores. There's just that many of them. You can all tell me how to pronounce that afterward. You have liberty to do that. Thank you. They were well acquainted with this idea of of a lamb uh, as a sacrifice because they did this every day. Like every single day, there were little lambs being marched up into the temple to be sacrificed as as an offering for the sins of the people. Listen, they weren't sacrificing the lambs because the lambs had run into the wrong field. They weren't sacrificing the lamb because he had, had, had acted out at school. These lambs were innocent. That was the idea. They were meant to serve as an innocent substitute in the place of the one who had sinned, as a substitute for me. They saw this every day. Beyond that, they were familiar with all the stories. We have neglected the Old Testament so much in our our current uh, ecclesiastical world. We've we've neglected it that we we don't understand that when they heard Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they remembered Abraham in Genesis 22. Like they remembered him when he took his son Isaac and he climbed with his son up to the top of that hill. They remember how, how while they were walking, Isaac had asked his daddy, uh, I see the fire, I see the wood, I've noticed you're carrying a knife. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham, in that moment, trusting, hoping, and believing, said to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And then they would remember how how Abraham tied up his son, how Abraham laid him on the wood, how Isaac allowed this to happen, and how just as the knife was about to come down, they would remember how God shouted, stop, stop. How he stopped the knife from coming down. He stopped the knife from killing Isaac. And you know the story too, now that he provided a substitute. There was a ram caught by his antlers, horns, over in the bushes. And God provided that day. You know, it would be on another hill. It would be on another hill just outside of Jerusalem where another son would be marched up that hill carrying some wood. 
Another son would be led like a sheep to the slaughter. Another innocent lamb was presented as a sacrifice for the sin, not of himself, but as a substitute for those around him. And this time, God would not shout, stop. This time, the knife would fall. The son would be nailed to the cross. This time, the son would be killed as an innocent substitute. You see, at Calvary, Christ took the sin of the world upon himself, and he cried out to the Lord in pain, like real tangible pain, real suffering and agony. And as he suffered and died, bearing the full wrath of God's righteous justice, justice that you and I cry out for as long as it doesn't happen to us. Most of us love justice as long as it doesn't happen to me. He did so. He took all of that as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Jesus, this is what the Lamb has done. And so what do we do with that? I mean, I think that's the question you and I have to ask today. What do we do with the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? Now, I know we're not in chapter 3 yet. We'll get there. But what do we do with the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his son? What do we do with that? Listen, we need to do something with that because here on the shore of the Jordan River, John the Baptist is declaring to us that the Son is here, that he is present. The Lamb of God is here. And so what do we, what do you and I do with that? What does this have to do with me today? Before we can do anything, we have to embrace him. We have to embrace him not just as a lamb, but as our lamb. Not just as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, but as the lamb who takes away my sin. I have to embrace Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away my sin. Well, it's certainly true that he died for the sins of the world. His atonement covers every sin that could ever happen. There is not anything else that would ever need to be done to save every human being in the world. There's no other substitute coming later to to catch up on what was left behind. That's not the idea here. No, he paid for it all there, but we have to embrace him as my Savior. We have to embrace and, and what, what Paul would say, that he is our Passover lamb. That it was his blood for me. We have to embrace the truth that Jesus died in, in our place. He died in my place. That's how he takes away our sin. That's the only way he takes away our sin. That's how he takes away my sin that he died for us. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the cry of the gospel. This is the message of the gospel, is that Jesus died for me. He paid my debt. He paid my ransom. He paid what I owe. Is that at the cross, he did not just cancel my debt. He didn't just erase it. He paid it. He paid it. So what you have to do here today is you have to be honest and ask yourself if you have ever embraced that in your life. Have you accepted that in in your heart? Have you seen your sin and cried out in repentance knowing that it was for your guilt, for yours, that Jesus was suffering, that Jesus was bleeding, that Jesus was dying? Listen, we're all guilty Every single one of us. You are not unique in that. 
I know that there's somebody in here right now that they think their baggage is too heavy. I love you. You're wrong. You're wrong. You can never outsend the grace of a perfect substitute for you. It's not possible. The question is only, have you trusted in his sacrifice to save you? If not, listen, I I love you. I am glad that you're here. I love you enough to tell you, though, in this moment, if you have not trusted in him, you are lost. And I would beg you today to cry out to him in faith. To trust in him as your only hope for salvation. To trust in Christ for your eternal life. And let's begin walking together in this. Like, like that's the cool thing. You don't get called into salvation and then go sent out onto an island on your own. You come into the family of faith. So let's walk together in this. And if you have, like if you have trusted in him for your eternal life, if you have by faith received the grace of salvation in Jesus Christ, I would beg you to point others to him. Tell the world what he has done for you. It's okay to personalize this. Stand in the gap of eternity and herald the good news that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. That in him, like that in him, all the tears will be wiped away. That in him, all the sadness, all the mourning will be turned into dancing. That all of the broken things will be made new. Point to him and tell what he has done. Embrace the truth that he saved you, not because he had to, but because he loves you. Like, like don't overthink the witness. John the Baptist, whom Jesus will later say, is that there will never be another man born of a woman like John the Baptist. That's a high honor. His witness was really, really simple. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I hope that's our witness. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would go to work on me. Here's the temptation that I'm going to confess again to you right now, that I'm going to leave this room and I'm going to immediately start thinking of dozens of things that I'm supposed to do today. And we're going to go get our kids from the nursery. We're going to go get some lunch. And if we survive that by some miracle of your grace, and I'm going to get home and I'm going to start thinking of all the things I have to do. God, I pray that you just help us to stop for just a minute and think about who you are and what you have done. That you did not leave us, that you did not forsake us, but that you sent your son to come and to to live the life that we cannot, to die the death that we deserve, and that that you have offered us this gift, this gift of grace that is free to us, but that cost him everything. And you've said, this can be yours. God, I pray that you would grant us the faith to follow you today. By your spirit, come and wake up our dead hearts I pray that you would do that. Let us be your witnesses, and we pray that in Jesus' name.